We return this morning to our studies in the prophecy of Jonah. You may remember that last week we were considering verse 3 and in particular seeing from there Jonah's disobedience in heading in the complete opposite direction from the one the Lord called him to. And we're going to think some more in verse 3 this morning and hopefully spend some time in verses 4 and 5 as well. There were a few things that we, we didn't quite cover last time. We did think of this Jonah's disobedience and the warning it gives us against disobedience. And we thought about how we can become dissatisfied with God's providence in our lives and with the areas of service that he is called to. And just as Jonah was looking to Tarshish for a new start, we can indeed wish away the time where God has placed us and where he calls us to be fruitful and bloom where we're planted. So we saw then, verse 3, that Jonah ran, ran. He ran to Joppa and then found a ship going to Tarshish. And we saw that he went onto the ship <coughs> and headed off. And we're going to begin by thinking about two questions. Two questions where we really ask why. Firstly, we ask, why did Jonah run? And secondly, we ask, why did God send Jonah, knowing that he was going to run? So why did Jonah run from this calling that he was given? Well, we saw last time, of course, that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, a wicked city, and a city that had no interest in the God of Israel. They had their own gods, and they were renowned for their wickedness and brutality. So I'm sure that there would be those human factors that are found in every situation. There would have been perhaps fear mixed in, because no doubt there was personal danger involved for Jonah in this 500-mile journey to this great city. But actually, we find near the end of the book the real reason for Jonah's fleeing from God's call, and that's found in chapter 4 and verse 2, where Jonah said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. And friends, these, that response of Jonah there should unsettle us, because it shows us the state of his heart and what he thought about God's grace. Jonah didn't want to go because he knew God would have mercy on these people. Throughout Israel's history, Israel was the nation where God was present and was working. Many other nations were left to perish in their sin throughout those centuries. There was no word from a prophet of the Lord to them. The prophets were in Israel. So Jonah's thinking, well, why would God warn this 
city if they wouldn't repent. There were many cities, many nations that wouldn't repent, that the prophets didn't go to. Why would God send Jonah all the way to this one? Jonah had a feeling that God was going to be merciful to them. He would have known God's promises to Abraham, that through Abraham's seed all nations of the earth would be blessed. He knew God would be merciful. He didn't want these people to be saved. Perhaps Jonah's reluctance was typical of Israel's view at that time. Did they think that they had an exclusive right to God's favour? It seems that that's what Jonah thought. That no God could only be merciful to Israel. He could only work his saving power there. What if Assyria became the new Israel? What if God changed his his focus from Israel to the other nations. So was Jonah's understanding of God's grace typical of Israel's at the time? And is this why God had to do this work through Jonah to awaken the entire nation? And of course, if Jonah went and preached that destruction would come in 40 days if they didn't repent, and they did repent, the destruction wouldn't come. And Jonah would feel he would look like a fool because what he said didn't happen. Even though the promise was there that if there was repentance, God would relent. But this must force us to ask the question, can God's mercy be too wide? Why did God choose Nineveh? To receive this merciful message. Why did God choose Nineveh. As the place where. Jonah would go. That place of spiritual darkness. Why did God choose to shine his light there. Because he did. That was according to his sovereign eternal counsel. And if you're a Christian. You can ask, why did God choose me? Why did he not leave me in the darkness of my sin? Because he did. And because he has chosen to have mercy on us, we can never, ever say that he has no right to have mercy on someone else. And we must guard our hearts against that. There can be people we really struggle with. There can be people that have committed all sorts of atrocities in this world. But we cannot contend with God and say he should or shouldn't be working here or in this heart or this heart. Friends, we cannot tell God how to run the affairs of the world. And that's what Jonah was trying to do. That's why he ran because he said, no, the Ninevites should not have mercy. If God chooses to save certain people, if he chooses to work in certain places, he has every right to. And you and I have no right to contend with him.
But it applies not just to salvation. It applies to all of God's working and providences. If God chooses to bless some people in some way, he has every right to. And if he chooses to withhold blessing from others, including ourselves, he has every right to. We can have no complaints. And at church level as well, we can have no complaints about what God is doing. If God chooses a church that we perhaps disagree with, if he chooses it to flourish, we can have an inner opposition to that. We can think, but they, they do things differently from us. Surely we are more biblical. So surely, therefore, God should be causing us to flourish. Why are we sitting with lo low numbers and they have their hundreds? We might never express these feelings outwardly to others, but we can have them and harbour them in our hearts. Now, of course, I mean a gospel church flourishing numerically and spiritually. I mean a church that is faithful to the gospel. There might be other things we disagree with, but they at least have that message of Christ and him crucified. But yet, because of the differences, we can think, well, I don't think God should or can be really working there because they do or don't do certain things. Or we can also jump quickly and say, well, this shows us the real state of the church and state of things. We can see it as a sign of God's judgment. They're all flocking there. Shows us the spiritual low ebb that we're at today. But actually God might be doing a great work there and blessing them. And we should rejoice wherever Christ is being formed in people's hearts more and more. And so we need evidence if God's working somewhere is in judgment. We need evidence and not assumption. Jonah wasn't happy about where God was working. And we can harbour such discouragement ourselves. But it's important to remember that God is sovereign. And he knows what he's doing. And we can have no complaints. But all we can do is seek to be as faithful as we possibly can to what we believe he has told us to do and that we seek to order our own lives and also our life and worship as a church according to his word. We be faithful and we don't measure our faithfulness or God's happiness with our church life according to the numbers, but we measure it against his word. So, that shows us why Jonah ran, and no doubt we'll visit these thoughts as we progress through the book, particularly in chapter 4. But we can also ask the question, well, why did God send Jonah? There were many prophets in Israel at those times. We have the writings of some of his contemporaries, such as Amos, such as Hosea. We know from the lives of Elijah and Elisha who came just before Jonah that there was the school of the prophets as well and there were many of these young men who received the word of God. So why Jonah? Why not a more faithful prophet who would have gone to Nineveh in a heartbeat? Because God wasn't just working 
in the lives of those Ninevites. He didn't just have great plans for them. He was working in Jonah's life as well. He he chose the prophet who wouldn't go to teach that prophet obedience. God's working at the macro level. But he's working at the micro level as well. He has a concern not just with cities and people, groups and churches. He has a concern for the heart of every single one of his people. So this was because he had a great work to do in Jonah's life. To let him see his own heart, to see his disobedience, to convict him and to change him. And it would serve as a warning to the other prophets as well. This is not this is what not to do. But you must always obey. So God has that individual concern for us as well. He has that concern for you today. He's doing great and mighty things throughout this world. But his people are ever on his mind. And our Lord Jesus said that he come, He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one that's strayed. That's how he acts as our shepherd. And he won't abandon any of his people to their hearts. But no, he will come and bring them back. So yes, it might seem like an unwise choice. But actually, God would have Jonah go there and he'd be working in Jonah's heart as well. And there's times when we can feel that we're the wrong choice or that someone else is the wrong choice. We can think that we are not the best person, not suited to a particular form of service. We can say, isn't someone else better for this work? Isn't someone else more equipped? Why me? Or we can think the opposite. We can we can think we're actually better suited to someone else. <coughs> We're better suited for a particular work and we can grow jealous that someone else is doing it as well. But friends, we can trust that God knows what he is doing. He knows. And he has reasons why he chooses particular people. Why any of the disciples we've seen In recent weeks in our studies in Matthew, the failings of them. Why then? Because the Lord was working in their hearts as well. And friends, it's often the case that as God is doing a work through us, it might be our service in church, it might be our witnessing just generally in our lives. When he's doing a work through us, he's also doing a work in us. And that's what Jesus was doing with the disciples when he sent them out. His word was going forth through them. He was doing that work through them. But he was also teaching them. They were his apprentices for these years. He was doing that work in them to train them as well. And we can know that he's always doing that in our lives. That when he's working through us in this world and accomplishing things, through us. He uses that as part of our sanctification as well. And our earthly service is part of our training for our heavenly service in the world to come.
And that's what God's doing in Jonah's life as well, teaching Jonah obedience. The word will still be preached in Nineveh, but it will be through a changed man. Maybe not at the time, we see more afterwards that Jonah would have this rebuke and the change, but it would be through a man Jonah was God was working in as well as through. Before we move on to verse 4, it's important that we say a word about providence in this part as well and how we read and understand God's providence because verse 3 shows us how important it is that when we're trying to discern what God wants us to do, that our circumstances must be married to his word and his word must be that confirmation. You can read verse 3 so quickly, particularly the last part. Jonah arrives in Joppa. The ship was there. He had the money. He's on the ship. He's away. So easy. So smooth. It must be what God wants because there were no barriers. There were no stepping stones. There were nothing in the way. The ship was there. He had the money. And it was uncommon to find a ship going so far. Remember how far away. Spain was. There would have been a lot more local ships likely to be going to more nearer places. But this was to Tarshish, all the way to Tarshish. There it was. This must be what God wants. But don't we fall guilty of that as well? That when everything's going just right, when there's no barriers, no opposition, we assume God is in it. And yet we can also be so quick to conclude that if some that if we meet with difficulty in something, well it can't be God's will, because why on earth would He give me a hard journey in it? It can often be the opposite. Actually, it can be God's will, but it'll be a way of testing will be a way of opposition. We will meet with difficulty. There was another servant of God in a shipwreck. But Paul didn't take these shipwrecks as a sign that he was on the wrong course. He met with much trial and difficulty. You just have to read 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to see he was despairing of life himself, but he kept going. And our Lord Jesus, when he met those fierce temptations from Satan, when he met with opposition in so many places, when he was given the cross to carry to Golgotha, he kept going because he knew what God's will was. You see how it's so important that we marry we must have providence and God's word married together. There's no way Jonah could conclude that God wanted him to go to Tarshish because he had told him to go to Nineveh. And friends, we must apply the doctrine of providence not just in making decisions in our lives, but also when it comes to sin ourselves, sin itself. Because God never, ever, ever wants us to sin. 
his will has already been made clear in scripture in that. And just because an opportunity to sin arises, that does not mean it God, it's God's will. It's never the case that the opportunity is presented to us and we can say, well, because I'm here now in this place, it must be the case. Sin is never God's will for us. But it can be hard when it comes to working out what God wants you to do with your life. If he wants you to do something, go somewhere. We need discernment. We must commit all our ways to God in prayer. I think it was Spurgeon who said that we don't really need discernment when it comes to working out right from wrong. That's easy. We have God's word to show us what's right and what's wrong. Discernment is needed to work out between what's right and what's almost right. And which way God wants us to go. And so we must look to providence. We must seek God daily in his word. Seek him in prayer. And ask him to guide our paths and to give us wisdom and discernment. And when it comes to discerning God's will and providence as well, what we can't trust either are our feelings. Because you know our hearts are deceitful, our feelings can fail us. And something sometimes good feelings about something can come from a hardened or a suppressed conscience. And we're not weighing it up properly. So we must always be wary of that as well. We'll see more of God's providence, well, just in verse 4, as we come to it now, as God works out his plans. Jonah's now on a boat heading for Tarshish, but of course he never made it anywhere near Tarshish. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Likewise, in Romans 11.29, Paul says, For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. You see, Jonah will exercise his prophetic ministry in Nineveh, because that is what God has called him to and gifted him for, and so he will go there. So in verse 4, we see that the storm comes, and right away we're met with God's providence again. We see his, the exercise of his sovereign control over all Creation, And we sang about that in Psalm 135, in verses 6 and 7. What things soever pleased the Lord, that in the heaven did he, and in the earth, the seas, and all the places deep, that be. And it says in verse 7 that he sends the wind from his treasures. And that's what he did. He sent that wind upon the sea where that ship was, that Jonah was in. At every level, God is in complete control. In the, in the great ecosystems of the world, in the weather systems, even in the casting of lots, we see in verse 7, God is in control. And this verse stresses for us that the storm was no accident. In Hebrew, 
you normally have the verb at the start of the sentence. But this sentence is quite unique because it doesn't start with the verb. It starts with the Lord's name. It's emphasizing that it was the Lord that brought about this storm. And we're told that the Lord hurled the storm. He sent out a great wind, literally hurled. It's this vivid picture of God throwing a wind upon them, like throwing a javelin. The wind was thrown upon them. And friends, it's a reminder of the power of the one Jonah tried to defy. This is the one that Jonah thought he knew better than and could go contrary to his will. It's foolishness to run from the one who has all the forces of nature at his disposal. The one whom we saw last time in Psalm 139 that we cannot escape, we can never flee from his spirit. He will pursue us. He will turn us. He will teach us obedience. It says in Proverbs 30 verse 4, Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? If you know. Right there pointing us to Christ as well. Because as we think of storms and boats, we're no doubt reminded of Christ and his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And how Christ shows his divinity in calming the storm. That he is the eternal God in human flesh. Who has the winds and the waves at his disposal. Who has all the forces of creation in his hand. And he is the God that we are called to submit to. So Jonah tried to escape. He tried to flee. But he never got out of God's reach. God already had a plan to bring Jonah back. If any of you ever walked a dog, you get those leads that that stretch out and they get so far and the dog thinks it's free, but then the windy lead comes to an end and the dog is stopped abruptly and it's reeled in again. And it's almost like that's what God has with Jonah here. Jonah thinks he's running away, but he's on a lead and the lead unwinds and unwinds a bit more, but it's got an end. For God presses the button and it's time to draw Jonah back. Friends, we cannot outrun God. We cannot thwart his plans. The obvious thing that it makes sense to do is to trust him. Do you see the logic of faith? The great, eternal, unchangeable I am. Who made you. Who will punish all sin. Will you live against him? Or will you yield your life up to him in submission? Don't you see the logic of the gospel? Don't you see what really makes sense? Complete surrender. The God who offers mercy. Who offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Jesus Christ. Will you take it? Will you take him? He will give you that. So we must trust him 
for eternity and trust him for everything in our daily lives as well, prayerfully looking to providence. And we know that God will open doors and he will shut doors where he sees fit to guide us. And if we are insistent on doing his will and living faithfully in obedience to him, we can know that he will lead us. And so we must focus on what he has told us, on his commandments that he has given us, on his instructions on how we are to live our lives in Christ. We do that and where we're meant to be, what we're meant to do, be doing, if we are seeking God's will daily, that will all become clear for us. We focus on what has been revealed and then gradually he reveals his particular will for our own individual lives. But he gives us the general will his revealed will in scripture to go by. Why did this storm come? It came because of Jonah's sin. And it's a reminder to us that sin will bring storms. Sin will always bring problems in our lives, no matter how secret we think they are. What did Jonah think the worst case scenario would be where did he think life couldn't get any worse? It was when he was at home and he was told to go to Nineveh. And he thought, can't get any worse than that. Going to that city. And so he thought he would get away from that. And now here he is on the brink of death in a boat and not even aware of it. Because he's asleep. Friends, sin and disobedience are never, ever, ever the better option. No matter how things may appear to our eyes, no matter how things might make sense in our thinking, our thinking is flawed. We are darkened. We can trust the eternal, unmatched wisdom of God. Now Jonah is in an even worse situation. At least if he died in Nineveh, he died in obedience. Now he's in a fierce storm. storm. The boat's about to break up and he's about to die in disobedience. And friends, God might bring your life to breaking point at times. And there's various reasons why he does so. If you're an unbeliever, he often does that to call people to himself, to bring them to an end of themselves and their resources in this world and to make them think about eternity. He might bring them to that crisis point because he means to convert them. But even as believers, it might be because we have sin needing repented of. He must stop us in our tracks. He must crush us in order to turn us. Or maybe, like Job, it's for no particular sin we've committed. But we're still at breaking point and God is just in his sovereignty testing us. And teaching us further trust and obedience. But we can know that for the believer, that breaking point is always going to be good in God's purposes. Never feels good at the time. We never perhaps know what God is doing and bringing us to it. It doesn't tell us those things. But we can know he always has good plans and purposes for his people and we can trust him even in the darkness where there is no light 
even in the valley of the shadow of death. He is with us in it. Sometimes we do just need to have our hearts and our minds recalibrated, brought to an end of ourselves that we will look to him afresh. But we're warned here that our sin will find us out and it will bring trouble for others as well as ourselves. Romans 14, 7 says, For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. And it's better that your sin finds you out now in this life and you repent and seek God's forgiveness rather than your sins finding you out in the day of judgment in eternity when it's too late, when there's no more opportunity for repentance and faith in Christ. So Jonah's sin put his own life in danger, but it put every life on that boat in danger. And it meant great loss for many on that boat, not their lives, but think of all the cargo that the sailors threw away in verse 5, for the ship, for all the traders that the ship was carrying for, they lost a lot of their business. And it's been the same we see throughout Scripture. Think of Achan's sin in Joshua, I think, chapter 7. He stole those idols, <coughs> hid them, things that were meant to be destroyed. There was sin in the camp. And God treated the camp as a whole because of Achan's sin. And what did it mean? It meant that when God, when Israel went into the next battle, having conquered Jericho, they head on in confidence to Ai. And God withheld himself from them. And they were defeated that first time until they routed out the sin in the camp. Your sin has consequences for others. As Jonah's did. Now, God willing, next week we'll consider Jonah in more detail at this point and we'll see what's going on in his life as he sleeps in the ship. But just for the remainder of our time, for five minutes or so, we're going to turn our attention to those sailors and see their reaction to the storm. And that's what we see in verse 5. Now, the fact that hardened sailors are afraid and are taking desperate measures shows how ferocious this storm is. And notice there are two things that the sailors resort to in verse 5. Firstly, crying out to their gods, which are false. And secondly, they throw the cargo overboard as well. And why do the sailors do this? Because they are aware that they are under divine judgment. They are aware that this storm is upon them and upon their ship because of divine judgment. Jonah is not aware of this at this point, but they are Friends, every act of God's judgment that we read about in Scripture and every act of his judgment that we see in history it should always direct our eyes forward and remind us of the judgment that God is bringing upon this world at the end of the ages. Every temporal judgment is a foretaste of the great final judgment to come because God is coming in wrath to punish sin. And so there are various lessons that we can learn from the sailors at this point. Firstly, that false gods will not save. It was common on these ships that as they stopped in at the different ports that they would lose some crew members, they would pick up other crew members. So there would be a whole host of nationalities represented on these boats, 
all with their own gods as well. And what we see is that as these sailors cried out to their gods, nothing happened because their gods weren't real. They were powerless and they could do nothing. And that's why in verse 6, eventually the captain gets Jonah to call on his God. Because these other gods are doing nothing. And so the captain's like, do you have a different God that we can try? And friends, right here, what we have as the sailors do this is a testimony against atheism. No one's really an atheist. If they really are, then, well, Paul says in Romans, they're suppressing the truth that is within them because man is made in God's image and God has set eternity in man's heart. And they know from creation, even before we turn to the Bible, there's that first book that shows God's existence and his power and glory. And we see that here that when Man is pushed, man prays. He knows he is created. He knows that the Almighty is out there. I don't know about you, but I've speaking, spoken to numerous people and at times in their lives when we're having a casual conversation over lunch, they tell me they don't believe in God. They think it's all nonsense. Then at other times when they've gone through struggles, they've confessed that they've prayed, they've cried out to God. Friends, man being made in God's image is one of our best evangelism tools because everyone knows that there's something greater than them out there. Now, they may have various views on that, be darkened in their understanding, but they know. And it's why there are so many world religions, because man must worship something. We were made to worship. So various people will speak of having faith. But what matters is the object of our faith. You can have your faith all you want, but who's your faith in? Friends, it must be faith in Jesus Christ. Forsaking all else, I trust him. It must be leaning completely on him. He is the full revelation of God to us. He is God's full and final say. He is the one who shows us God and he is the one who has come to reconcile us to God. So friends, all roads do not lead to God, but only Christ. Last night I was reading a review of the latest Indiana Jones film. It's just out. It didn't, didn't get good reviews at all. But you know how many films have those classic lines that are then quoted for, for years and decades afterwards? The, the big line that the hero says in the film. Well, apparently one of the lines in this new film is, it's not what you believe, it's how hard you believe it. It's not what you believe, it's how hard you believe it. And friends, that's complete nonsense. That's the nonsense that the world spouts at us. It doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you really believe it, that'll be fine. No, the Bible says the complete opposite. What you believe matters. What matters is what you think of Jesus Christ. 
can have all other sorts of beliefs. We live in a world that, that thinks everything is relative, that there are no absolute truths. But that can't be our mindset. It's false, it's a lie, it's dangerous. The world would say, well, let these sailors cry to their other gods. Let them have their other gods. But when it came to it, the sailors knew that they weren't real, that they did nothing. It is what we believe. It's who we believe on. And that's what being a Christian is. It's we believe in Christ. But it's more than believing in his existence. It's more than believing in the historical facts regarding his birth, life, death and resurrection. We believe on Christ. We roll ourselves completely on him. We lean on him for our salvation. It's believing in. We need to believe the truths about him. But we take these truths and we say, these are my only hope. And we believe on him. Do you see that difference? Believe in him and lean on him to be saved. And what the reaction of the sailors also shows us is that our own efforts will not save us. They tried to get through the storm by throwing the cargo overboard. And that was futile. It was Jonah that needed to go overboard. Not the cargo. And actually some scholars reckon that throwing the cargo over the overboard was not just to lighten the loads, but also as sacrifices to these various gods in order to appease them. They were giving up their worldly goods and offering it to the god of the sea or the god of the wind or whatever. But the truth is we cannot save ourselves. We cannot get ourselves right with God. And are you still trying to do that? You think, well, I need to get this sin out of my life. I need to get this sin out of my life. Good thing to do, but it won't save you. That must come after faith in Christ. Trying to reform your life in order to become acceptable to God won't work because you'll never go far enough. We cannot attain to a righteousness on our own. We need a righteousness outside of ourselves given to us. And that's what God gives us in Christ. We call upon him to save us. He does, and only through his death at Calvary can we be saved. And it shows us also that when eternity becomes more of a reality for us, all our earthly possessions become useless. When death approaches, so much doesn't matter. Because what matters is that one thing that is needful, having Christ. And we realise that all these things they're going to do nothing for us in eternity. And so these sailors were thinking, well, we're about to die. We might as well try something. This cargo is going to go down anyway if the ship breaks up. Let's try and lighten the load and save our lives. How foolishly people live for the things of the world. Things that they may enjoy for a few years, but can't take with them to eternity. And these things keep them from seeing what really matters in eternity. But it's also a reminder to us as believers, do we have our priorities set out straight? 
Is it the material or the spiritual that matter most to us? Is it the temporal or the eternal things? And we can all give the textbook answer. But do we live like it each day? Do our souls come first? Do our souls having communion with God come before all else? But friends, just to conclude, notice that God is working in the lives of these sailors. Notice the progression in them in this chapter. They go from, in verse 5, fearing the storm and calling out to their gods to then being exceedingly afraid in verse 10 because Jonah has defied his God to then praying to the God of Israel in verse 14 to then (laughs) fearing the God of Israel in verse 16 and worshipping him. God's working in the lives of these sailors. And that's part of the reason why he allowed Jonah to go that far in the opposite direction. He didn't just have a plan for Nineveh, a plan for Jonah. He had a work to do in the lives of these men on the boat as well. That doesn't excuse Jonah's running away, but it shows how God works all things for good. So may... God bless his word to us this day. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for the truths that your word contains. And we pray that you would spur us on in our own Christian lives to that further devotion and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. That he would be our first love and our priority each day. And that you would help us as we seek your will for our lives to to read your providence correctly and to study your word and to know where you're leading us and what you're calling us to. So we pray that you would help us in this and we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us conclude by singing in Psalm 115 in the Scottish Psalter. Psalm 115, let us sing verses 1 to 9. Not unto us, Lord, not to us, but do thou glory take unto thy name, even for thy truth and for thy mercy's sake. O wherefore should the heathen say, where is their God now gone? But our God in the heavens is, what pleased him he hath done. Their idols silver are and gold, work of men's hands they be. Mouths have they, but they do not speak, and eyes, but do not see. Ears have they, but they do not hear, noses, but savour not. Hands, feet, but handle not, nor walk, nor speak they through their throat. Like them their makers are, and all on them their trust that build. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and shields. Let us sing Psalm 115, verses 1 to 9.
Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.